All right, let's, uh, let's come together. Be seated. We have some empty seats now that the kids are gone. That's great. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. I, I can't tell you how rich the study of the gospel of Luke has been for my own soul. Week after week after week, I just feel uh, like it's a treasure that we get to enjoy. And uh, there's no, no change here. This is the parable of the minas this morning. So let's stop and pray, and then we'll get right into God's Word. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray for your blessing and your unction and anointing upon the Word of God today. We thank you that we have a perfect, inerrant Word that we can trust, that will lead us safely home to heaven. And we pray, Lord, for light and conviction and for the will in our hearts to apply and live out the truths that we see in your word today. In Jesus' holy name, amen. amen. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves, and he gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here's your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down, and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him, and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here, and slay them in my presence. Now, last Sunday morning, we were privileged to see the conversion of a man named Zacchaeus, a rich tax collector, a tiny little guy, and we found out that uh, the average Jewish male during the first century was about five feet one inches tall, so Zacchaeus was very short. He would have appeared like a dwarf to us, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus coming down that way because he was curious about him. Well, the wonderful thing is that he was transformed by the grace and power of Jesus Christ. A man who had lived for the God of money, discarded that old God, and took up the true and living God as his Savior and King. And so a man who was characterized by selfishness and greed and lying and stealing and cheating now is characterized by generosity and liberalness of heart. So a wonderful transformation in his life. And Jesus concludes this whole section in verse 10 when he says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost including Zacchaeus. They were grumbling because Jesus went to the house to be the guest of a sinner, and Jesus said, that's why I came into the world. I came to seek and to save the people nobody else wants, the people that everybody else shuns. I love those people, and I've come to save them. Well, verse 11 says, while they were listening to these things, 
Jesus went on to tell a parable. Now, verse 11 answers some questions for us. First of all, the question is, who is Jesus telling this parable to? The parable of the minas. It says, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell them a parable. Well, who is Jesus just talking to in verses 1 through 10? Or to be more specific, verses 8 through 10. Well, he's talking to Zacchaeus. No doubt Jesus' disciples were there with him. So Jesus is talking to his disciples and Zacchaeus. If Zacchaeus had a family, he's talking to the family. And I just wonder if Zacchaeus may have invited over some of his low-down, riffraff friends, tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, and they were hanging around the house too. So there was a, a group of people that Jesus now is speaking to. And he speaks to them a parable. Where is Jesus when he speaks this parable? Well, it says, while they were listening to these things, he went on to tell them a parable. So no doubt this was Zacchaeus' home. Or perhaps the courtyard. Maybe they'd spilled outdoors onto the porch area. And he's speaking there somewhere near the residence of Zacchaeus. Third question is, why did Jesus give this parable of the minas? Well, we're told. He did it because they were near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. You see, the Jewish people had this expectation that when the Messiah showed up, he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. The Romans had come in and subdued the nation of Israel. And so the Jews were sort of a vassal nation. They were under the dominion of Rome. And they hated that. They chafed under this rule of these Gentiles, these pagans that had come in and, and conquered them. And they longed for the day when the Messiah would come and set them free. Now, what's the festival that Jesus is about to partake of in about a week from now? Passover. What were the Jews remembering at the Passover festival? How God had set them free from the Egyptians. At one time, long ago, they were also subjected to these Gentile people, the Egyptians, and the Lord came in with a mighty hand and rescued them and took them out. And so every Passover season, the Jews are anticipating, when will the Messiah come? When will he set us free? When will he restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus is only about a week or 10 days from his cross. He's only about 15 miles from Jerusalem, which is only about a five or six hour walk. He's very close to the end of his life. He's going up to the Passover festival and all the people have this expectation. Could Jesus be the Messiah? We've seen his miracles. We've seen him walk on water and multiply loaves and heal the sick. Could he be the Messiah expected in the Old Testament prophecies? Will he now restore the kingdom to Israel? And remember that even the disciples after Jesus rose from the dead, remember what their question was to Jesus? Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It was just on their minds constantly. Of course, they didn't realize that Jesus didn't come the first time, to restore any kingdom to Israel, he came to seek and to save the lost. He came to save sinners by dying as a substitute and a sacrifice for sin. Now, as we get into this passage, I want you to know that it is a lot like another parable that we find in Matthew chapter 25. That's called the parable of the talents. There's a lot of similarities between these two parables, but they're not the same parable. There are a lot of differences, actually. Let me just share some of those differences with you. The parable of the talents in Matthew 25, I believe it's verses 14 to 30, if you wanted to take a look at that later. Jesus gave that parable while he's in Jerusalem. But the parable of the minas, he gives while he's in Jericho. He's a little bit outside of Jerusalem. So two different time frames when he's giving these two different parables. Also, in the parable of the talents, the central figure is called a man. Well, here in Luke 19, he's called a nobleman. Two different people. In the parable of the talents, there are three slaves. In the parable of the minas, how many slaves are there? There's ten. Two different amount of slaves. In the parable of the talents, the man gives a different amount of money to each one of his slaves. Well, in this parable, he gives the same amount of money to each one of his slaves. He gives him one mina apiece. 
In the parable of the talents, there's no mention why this man goes away on a journey. There's no reason given for that, that, that journey that he goes on. Well, here we're told why he went. He went to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. In the parable of the talents, the slaves doubled their money. The man who had five talents made five more. The man who had two talents made two more. But here in this parable, the man who had the one talent didn't double it. He multiplied it by ten. He made ten more. The man, the other slave who had one mina, he made five more. So there's a different multiplication in mind. Also, the, in the parable of the talents, the unfaithful slave put his money in a hole in the ground. But in this parable, he didn't do that. He put it in a handkerchief. Are you starting to see all the differences between these two? They're not the same parable at all, although they, you might think that from your first reading of them. And then finally, in the parable of the talents, the slaves are given the same reward, the exact same reward. But in this parable, the slaves are given different rewards. One gets ten cities, one gets five cities. So, here are the two lessons that we can learn. The parable of the talents teaches us this, and put on your thinking caps and tune in. Equal faithfulness to different degrees of opportunities yields the same rewards. That's what the parable in Matthew 25 teaches. These people had different amounts of money given to them. They were equally faithful. They received exactly the same reward. So, there's a Billy Graham and there's you. If Billy Graham is just as faithful and you are as just as faithful as each other, it doesn't matter how many abilities and talents you have and doesn't matter how many abilities and opportunities he has. If you're both equally faithful, that parable teaches that you're going to receive the same reward. Can you imagine getting the same reward as Billy Graham or a George Whitfield? Be faithful with the gifts God has given you and that will be true. But this parable teaches something different. Different degrees of faithfulness to the same opportunities yields different rewards. You catch that? Different degrees of faithfulness to the same opportunities, because each of them got one mina, but they were differently, uh, different degrees of faithfulness to that one mina, yielded a different reward. One got ten cities, excuse me, one got five cities. So those are the major principles and lessons that these two parables teach. But now we're going to zero in on this particular parable, and we're going to look at three classes, three groups of people in this parable. There's the nobleman, there are the slaves, and there are the citizens. First of all, let's look at the nobleman. And first of all, his nobility. Verse 12 says, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. The Greek word for nobleman means a high-born man. He was a high-born man. He was born into a family of money and power and prestige. Perhaps he was even the son of a king. He was nobility. He was a nobleman. And you know, the Lord Jesus Christ is who this nobleman is picturing. This nobleman shows us and represents Jesus for us. This isn't Jesus a nobleman? Isn't he a high-born man? Who is his father? He's the son of the living God. His father is the king of all kings. He has this heavenly parentage. And so Jesus comes into the world. Nobody knows it. Nobody discerns it because his nobility is veiled in human flesh. But we've got the greatest man who has ever lived or ever will live here on planet Earth. A nobleman. Secondly, notice his departure. It says that he went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Now, notice that word distant. A far country. Distant country. What error is Jesus correcting by telling him he's going on a far country, to a distant country? Do you remember verse 11 tells us why he told the parable? Because many of them were expecting that the kingdom of God was going to appear when? Immediately. Right away. And Jesus is saying, no, no, I've got to go away to a distant country. Long ways away. 
Now, did people travel about quickly in the first century? No way. <laughs> you, you either walked or you rode on a camel or a donkey or you got in a boat and you sailed. But at most, you're only traveling a few miles an hour. So if you're in Jerusalem and you have to go to Rome, that's going to take you months to get to Rome and back. Months and months of travel time. What Jesus is saying is, no, the kingdom is not going to appear immediately. Because I have to go away, and I'm going to be gone a long time, because it's a long ways away, and then I'll finally return. And so he's pointing to not only his, his death, but his ascension to heaven, and then his second coming, which is going to be a long, indefinite period of time away. Thirdly, I want you to notice his kingdom. It says in verse 12, he went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Interestingly, there was a man that had reigned in Judea who was the son of Herod the Great by the name of Archelaus. Herod the Great had four sons. Herod the Great was a very wicked man. He killed anybody that he thought might take his throne. But he had four sons, and when he died, in his will, he bequeathed part of his kingship to his four sons. And he bequeathed the area of Judea to the son named Archelaus. But Archelaus was also a wicked man, and he didn't endear himself to the Jewish people because early on, when he came to Judea to put down a revolt, he slaughtered 3,000 Jews in the temple. So he was hated by the Jewish people. He could not simply assume the reigns of king in Judea. He had to go and have that ratified and verified by Caesar. So he made the journey all the way to Rome to receive the kingdom and then return to rule. Well, interestingly, the people of Judea hated him, and so they sent a delegation of 50 Jews to plead that the Caesar would not make him king over them. And so when Jesus is telling this parable, they're saying, wait a minute, I've heard this story before. And interestingly, Jesus was in Jericho when he gives the parable. Archelaus had built a palace in Jericho. Everybody knew about Archelaus. Uh, he died somewhere around 6 AD, and so this was within their lifetime. So they're thinking, wait a minute, I know who he's talking about. I've heard this story before. So Jesus is actually drawing on a historical account that they were familiar with and making it into a parable to picture spiritual truth. So here we go. His nobility, king of kings, lord of lords. His departure, his ascension to heaven. His reason, to receive a kingdom for himself. Did you know that's why Jesus went back to heaven after he died and rose again? He went back to heaven to receive a kingdom. I want to show you that from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel is seeing these visions that the Lord is giving to him. And he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking this is describing his second coming. I used to think that way. It's not. One like the Son of Man was coming, but where is he coming to? Is he coming to the earth in his second coming? No. And he came up to the Ancient of Days. Who's that? God the Father. Jesus is coming to God the Father. And he was presented before him. Now, where in the, where in the world did this happen? This happened in heaven. Upon his ascension to the right hand of God, he was presented before the Father. Now, what did the Father do when Jesus was presented before him? Verse 14. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. He went to receive a kingdom. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Do you know Jesus is going to have representative peoples from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation to serve him. There's not going to be one country, one people group on the face of the earth without a representation, without someone that he's redeemed, his elect scattered throughout all the peoples of the world. He's going to save and he's going to draw. They're going to serve him. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion 
which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So Jesus went back to heaven to receive a kingdom, and God the Father conferred on him dominion, and promised him that peoples from every tribe would come and bow to him and serve him. Hallelujah. The glory of our Lord Jesus Christ is seen in this picture. Remember Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, when did that happen? That happened upon his resurrection from the dead as a reward for his obedience and his sufferings. Jesus came to fulfill the Father's will. Isaiah 53. He came sent by the Father on a mission to die for God's people, scattered throughout the world. He accomplished that mission. He ascended back to heaven, and God gives him all authority, just like it says here in Daniel 7.14, that all the peoples of the earth would serve him. So his ascension to the right hand of God is his coronation day, crowned king of all kings and lord of all lords. So here we have the introduction to us of this nobleman. Now let's move on and let's... Notice what the scripture has to say about these slaves. First of all, the number of these slaves in verse 13. And he called ten of his slaves. Ten of his slaves. He didn't call twelve. If Jesus had used twelve slaves in this parable, what would we have thought? That it refers to his apostles and nobody else. And so it has no relevance for us. But he didn't choose 12, he chose 10. Often, the number 10 in the Bible is a picture for f the full number or the complete number. I believe these 10 slaves picture you and me and all God's people who have ever lived, scattered throughout the world of all times. These are God's servants. So you're here. Somewhere in this parable, you are here. You're either a faithful slave or you're an unfaithful slave or you're a citizen. But you're here in the parable somewhere. These are ordinary Christians. You shouldn't get the idea that Jesus is just talking about pastors and elders and deacons and missionaries and apostles. He's talking about regular, ordinary believers like us. Secondly, notice the commission given to these slaves in verse 13. He gave them ten minas, and he said to them, Do business with this until I come back. There's the commission. Do business with this until I came back. He gave them one mina apiece. Now, a mina was equivalent to 100 days wages for a common, ordinary working man. So about four months rent for just a common worker in that particular day. Now, why did he give them all this period of money and then go away on a journey? What are they supposed to do with the money while he's gone? Do business with it. He wants them to increase the money so that when he comes back, he'll have more money than when he left. Right? So they're to invest the money while he goes away. Some of them might have put it in stocks and bonds if they had that back in the first century. Uh, some of them may have bought merchandise and resold it for a profit. You know, they, they had the freedom to, to invest it whatever way they wanted, but the goal was to give back to the master more than he originally gave them. Do business with it until I come back. Now, notice that this was not their money as a personal gift to do with whatever they wanted. In fact, when the, the master comes back and he calls these slaves to account, they say, your mina has made so many minas more. They realized it wasn't theirs. It was given to them in trust. It was a deposit that the master had given to them so that they would use it for his interests, and they knew that they would be called to account to explain what they had done with that mina while he was away. So in other words, they couldn't just take their four months of wages and go on a vacation to the Bahamas and just live it up for a while. If they did that, they would be a wicked, worthless slave, and they would be called to account. They were to, do they were to put it to work while he was gone. So my friends, let me just ask you, God has given all of us a mina. He's given all of us something. And notice he gave the same thing to every one of these slaves. And we think, well, what, what, what is that picture? What does that represent? 
And I, I've thought back and forth, and there, there are a couple of suggestions. Some people suggest that this mina is the gospel, because God has given the gospel to every Christian. The same gospel is entrusted to every believer. And he says, do business with this until I come back. And that may be the case. I'm, I'm not sure. There's also another suggestion that this is talking about the life that all believers have. All of us have one life to give back to our Lord. No matter how long or how short it is, we all have this life. And we are to do something with that life while we have it to increase his interests in the world. So let me ask you, what are you doing with your mina? Are you using it for his interests? For the glory of Jesus Christ? Or are you using your life for yourself? For your selfish interests? For your own pleasures and your own desires? Whose will are you seeking today? The master or you? That's really what this parable boils down to. So there we have the commission. Now notice thirdly their judgment. Verse 15. When he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. What is this picture? Judgment. One day, some people think that the believers escape God's judgment. We don't escape. Nobody escapes God's judgment. We're not going to be judged in terms of our sin because Christ took care of that for us at the cross. But we will be judged for our lives. What we have done in the body while we live here on this earth. We will have to give an account. You say, Brian, are you, you sure about that? I'm, I'm very sure about that. Romans 14 tells me that. Romans 14, verse 10 at the very end. Paul says, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. Now notice this. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Who's Paul writing to? Lost people or saved people? He's writing to the Christians, to the called. And he's telling called people, saved people, each one of us, must give an account of himself to God. Judgment Day, where we will give an account. It's a very, very sobering thing whenever I think about Judgment Day. And I, I wonder, Lord, am I using my life the way I ought to? I must give an account for my life one day. I'm going to have to give an account for the time that you gave me on earth, for the money that you entrusted to me, for the people that were under my influence, all of that. Any gifts that you gave to me, did I use them for your glory? Or did I just kind of squander them and pursue my own selfish ends? All of that will be judged on this day. Notice also 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He says, For we must all, again, we, the church at Corinth and Paul, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So any deeds that you have done in your body, that means during your life here on earth, will be judged, and you will be recompensed on this, this final day of judgment. Now, we've, we've looked at the number of the slaves, the commission of the slaves, and the judgment of the slaves. At this point, I want to subdivide those slaves into two categories. Faithful slaves and the unfaithful slave. So let's go back to Luke 19 and let's look at the faithful slaves. One of the things we learned about these faithful slaves is that they increased the money that was deposited to them. They put it to work. They were diligent. When the master came back, they had more money to give him than what, he, what they originally received from him. Now, why do you suppose they did that? Why would they work so diligently and so hard to increase money for this nobleman? I believe that's it. I believe they loved him. They wanted to please him. They trusted him. They loved and trusted this nobleman, and they wanted to advance his interests. It's kind of like when one of these presidential candidates is running for office, and he's got all these people supporting him, and they're throwing their money in, and they're going to the conventions, and they're putting up signs. 
Well, that's kind of like what these faithful slaves are. They're supporting this nobleman and his cause and this kingdom that he's bringing to pass. So they increased his money. Secondly, notice that they're rewarded. Let's go down. Verse 16. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be an authority over ten cities. Did you see the two types of rewards that we find in that verse? What's the very first thing Jesus says to him? Well done. Good slave. Good slave. Good slave. Well done. What is that? Praise. Praise. One of the rewards, I believe, that we will receive in heaven is praise from the very presence and lips of your Savior that died for you upon that cross. He will speak words of praise to you if you have been faithful. Can you imagine being ushered out of the crowds of millions and millions of people to stand alone before Jesus and he looks into your eyeballs and he says, Anthony, Karina, Debbie, well done. You have been a good slave. I appreciate your labor that you have shown to me. I can't hardly say it without tears coming to my eyes. Well done, good slave. So praise is one of the rewards. And that's not an insignificant little thing. That's a glorious thing. I, and I believe every Christian, every true Christian is going to have some praise on that day. It's not like some people don't get any. First um, Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5 says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Isn't that glorious? Both of these faithful slaves receive some kind of praise. And it comes out even more striking in the parable of the talents. Whether he doubled his two talents or doubled his five talents, the very same words are given him. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. The second reward here is authority. Did you catch that? I want you to be an authority over ten cities. Now, the other servant was faithful, but he wasn't quite as faithful and he wasn't quite as diligent, so he take his, took his one minus, he made five minus. The one who was really just all out on fire for the interests of his master, he made ten. Jesus gave rewards proportionate to their diligence and how they had laid themselves out for the interests of their master. Right? So it's, it's proportionate to their diligence in serving their master. But in another sense, these rewards are really disproportionate. Think of it. For every mina that they had made, they got a whole city. Does that sound like that a mina is equal to a city? I mean, a city is you've got thousands of people that now you're ruling over. And he's elevated you now. The, the honor and the esteem of having government over an entire city. Not one, ten of them. So every mina that you make, he gives you a city for it. It just shows to me the lavish generosity, even in the rewards that we get. I mean, we, they're far beyond what we've earned. <laughs> he's just so generous to take people like us who, who have tried to serve him in our bumbling, fumbling best way that we could, and he just gives us way beyond even what we've earned. Here we have these rewards given to faithful servants. Notice verse 17. Well done, good slave. Notice this. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing. <laughs> you, you've been faithful just in this very little thing. Let me super bless you with a great big thing, right? Wow. Jonathan Edwards, a great scholar in the colonies here of America in the early 1700s, when he was a young man of about 19 years old, wrote 70 resolutions. Resolved this, resolved that. I just want to read you one of his resolutions. Resolved to end endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. 
with all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence, I am capable of, or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. <laughs> you catch that? Jonathan Edwards says, this is what I have decided I'm going to give my life to. I'm going to give my life to living now so that I can obtain as much happiness, not now, but in the coming world as I possibly can. I'm going to lay my life out with all the strength all that I possess so that I can obtain as much happiness in the other world as I can. Did you know that you can have a greater measure of happiness in the coming world if you serve more diligently now? That's what Jonathan Edwards believed, and I think that's what comes out in the parable. Ten cities. Praise from Jesus Christ himself. So these faithful slaves increase their money, and they are rewarded. Do you have the same goal as Jonathan Edwards? Do you want to have as much happiness in the life to come as you possibly can? Let's make that our goal, church. Let's make it our goal. Now let's turn our attention from these faithful slaves and let's look at the one unfaithful slave here. The first thing I see about him is that he made no effort to increase his trust. What did he do with his mina? Did he make any more? Uh-uh. He took it, put it in a napkin. Stowed it away someplace in his house so that he'd give it back to the master when the master got back. Did the master tell him to put it away for safekeeping until he got back? What, were the com what was the commandment of the nobleman? Do business with this. He completely disobeyed the order of his master. Disregarded it. Completely disregarded that command. He made no effort to increase his trust. The other two guys are working diligently. They're taking the money and they're putting it to good use. This guy takes it, puts it in a napkin, puts it on the shelf in his house, and just forgets about it until the master shows up. This is picturing for us a professing Christian who never labors for his Lord. He never works for him. He doesn't use the opportunities of his life. He doesn't use his gifts. He doesn't use his time. He doesn't use his talents for his Lord. He uses them all for himself. He, he takes all of those things and he heaps them up to himself and lives for his own pleasures and his own desires and does not think of the interests of Jesus Christ in the world. That's who this unfaithful slave pictures. He never denies himself, takes up his cross and follows Jesus. He professes that this nobleman is his master. You'll find that out when he's confronted by the master. Let me see if I can find it. Verse 20. Another came saying, Master, here's your mina. He professes that he is his master. But he doesn't live as though he's his master. He had distorted, he had a distorted view of his master. Why did he take that money and put it in a, hanker, a handkerchief? Verse 21. Because he was afraid of him. He was afraid of the nobleman. Why was he afraid of him? Because he knew that he was an exacting man. He said, you take up what you didn't lay down. You reap what you did not sow. Now, what's this pointing to? His perception of the nobleman was that he was a man who was using these slaves for his own ends. He's taking advantage of them. He's reaping where he didn't sow. He's manipulating them towards his own ends. In other words, he doesn't care about the slaves at all. All he cares about is himself. That's what this slave is thinking. You, you, you don't care about me, Lord. You don't have my best interests at heart. You only have your own best interests at heart. And you're just making me do the, this dirty work so that you can be enriched. You know what that tells me? This slave didn't know his master. The other two slaves knew the master. They, don't, they loved him. They trusted him. They're... Busting their buns, working, <laughs> increase his glory and increase his interests in the world. They, they knew him. There's, no, there's never any thought in their minds that, oh, he's just manipulating and using me. He doesn't care about me. But this guy has it all different. There's this distorted picture of the character. They're impugning the integrity of the nobleman. They think he's a thief, a liar. A manipulator. 
Now notice what the master says to this unfaithful servant. Verse 22, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. How would you like to be called a worthless slave on judgment day? Worthless. Many versions, if not most of them, do not use the word worthless. They use the word wicked because the same Greek word has a range of meaning that includes worthless and wicked. So let's take both of those meanings. Jesus is calling this man a wicked slave, a worthless slave. Wow. He's worthless because he's unwilling to labor for his master, and he's wicked because he impugns the character of his master. He's both wicked and worthless. And what does the Lord, the nobleman, do? He takes away everything that he had given to this man and gives it to the one who had worked really hard the man who had made ten minas. He strips him of everything that he had entrusted to him. You can't have it anymore. You've been unfaithful with it. I'm taking it away from you. I'm giving it to someone who will put it to good use. Now, here's the big question. Does this unfaithful slave represent a true Christian? I went through my notes. I've got notes that date back 20 and 30 and 35 years from when I've studied the Bible. I file them away. And I looked at some of my old notes, and there was a time when I thought that this man represented a true believer. I thought it was just that God took away his rewards. I don't think that way anymore. And let me just give you three reasons why. Number one, Jesus calls him a worthless and wicked slave. I don't think Jesus is going to call any of his true followers worthless or wicked on Judgment Day, because they've been justified. That means declared righteous in His sight. They're not wicked. The Holy Spirit lives in them. How can they remain wicked slaves? They're being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. In fact, they've been predestined from all eternity to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. They're not wicked. Yes, they're not perfect. Yes, they still have remaining sin, but they are being conformed into His holy image. So they're not worthless and they're not wicked. Secondly, these slaves impugn the integrity of Jesus Christ. Does a true believer ever trash talk about Jesus? Would you say that? That they go around saying, you don't care about me. All you care about yourself. I mean, that, that is, that's contrary that, that's totally opposite of the holy nature that the Spirit puts in a believer who loves his master and knows that he's worthy and that he's good, right? We confess that he's good and loving and kind towards us and that he cares for us and died for us because he loves us. We don't say you care about nobody but yourself. And the third reason is the parable of the talents. Now, I spent a lot of time telling you that the parable of the talents is not the same parable as the parable of the minus, and I stand by that, but there are a lot of similarities, and when you compare the two, let's compare the unfaithful slave and the parable of the talents for just a minute. I want to read to you Matthew 25, verse 30. This is what the master says to the unfaithful slave in this parable. Throw out the worthless slave. There we have the worthless slave again. Where? into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what's he describing? Hell. hell. Eternal hell for a slave. He's a worthless slave. He professed that he was the master, but he was worthless and wicked. See, this slave didn't really know his master, and he didn't trust his master. What do you call someone who doesn't love or trust Jesus? You trust, he, you, you call that a lost person. Now, this, we have literally millions of unfaithful slaves in America. Millions and millions of them. What am I talking about? Nominal Christians. False converts. People who profess that Jesus is their master, but they don't love or trust him. How do you know if, they, if, if, this mas if this unfaithful servant really had loved and trusted his master, what would he have done? He would have obeyed him. He would have taken that money and started working for his master. His life testified that he didn't love and trust him. 
It was evidence that he was a false convert, that he didn't know his Lord. Nominal Christians, false converts, people who take up the name of Christ, people who have answered an altar call, raised their hand, said the sinner's prayer, joined a church, got baptized, take the Lord's Supper, and do that for years, but never work for Jesus Christ. Never work for Him. Never labor for Him. Their own interests are uppermost, and His get a casual nod from now and then, but they don't really care about the interests of Jesus in the world. That's a false slave, an unfaithful slave, and that slave will be cast into hell. We may have some unfaithful slaves here this morning. You need to hear this. Are you true or false? Are you real or phony? Now, let's take a look at the citizens. Number three. There's a third group. This group comes up in verse 14. The first thing we learn about these citizens is that they were under his authority. Verse 14 says, But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We don't want this man to reign over us. Notice what they're called. Whose citizens are they? His. Even though they hated him, even though they didn't want him to reign over them, they could not escape the fact that they were his citizens. They were under his jurisdiction. He had authority to rule and reign over them, whether they liked it or not. And they tried. They chafed under his authority, and they tried to get out from under his authority. They even sent a delegation to reason with the emperor so that they wouldn't have to be under his authority. But they were still under his authority because they were his citizens. My friend, Jesus Christ owns you. These citizens made no profession that the nobleman was their master. These are talk, we're talking here about people who do not profess Christ. Atheists, agnostics, followers of some other religious leader or, or religious group. They're non-professors of Jesus Christ. But you know what? Jesus still owns you no matter if you profess faith in him or not. He is still your Lord. He is still your master. And just by denying that he exists or denying that he is Lord isn't going to change one thing. You are still under his jurisdiction and he is going to call you to account one day. In fact, what, what do they receive? They are slayed in his presence when he comes back. Judgment falls upon these citizens. So yes, they're under his authority. Second thing we learn about them is they hate the nobleman. They hate him. Now, the Jews of the first century had a reason to hate Archelaus. He had come in and he had killed 3,000 Jews. And so there's, they had good reason, right? Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. Do sinners have a good reason to hate Jesus today? Is there any good reason to hate him? Nope. He loves them. He came on an errand of mercy from heaven because they were drowning and perishing and he came down to die for sinners. He opened his arms wide upon that cross and he still invites all to come unto him to find life today. He loves perishing. There's no reason why anybody should hate Jesus Christ, but you know Jesus said in John 15 that they hate me and they're going to hate you. You're, the disciples not above his master. If they hated the master, they're going to hate you too. They've hated me without a cause. And the people of this world hate Christ. Now, they'll never admit to that. But God sees their hearts. Why do you suppose these people hated this nobleman? Well, it's because they didn't want him to reign over them. This nobleman was going to be their judge. He was going to be an authority over them. And they didn't want that. They wanted to do their own will. They didn't want to have to obey this man. So they hated him without a cause. The third thing I learned about this, these citizens is that they resisted his rule. They sent this delegation resisting his rule over them. 
doing everything they could to get out from underneath the rule of this nobleman. And that reminds me of Psalm 2. I want to read that to you. Just the first three verses of Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, this is what they say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. What are these cords and fetters he's talking about? It's the rule of Jesus Christ over them. They don't want Him to rule over them. They feel like they're bound up and tied up to have to obey Him. Well, they don't want to do that. They want to obey their own will. But notice verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. (laughs) They're doing their utmost to squirm out from underneath the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is in the heavens and He just laughs. It says, the Lord scoffs at them. He laughs at them. You might be a king on earth. You, You might be a leader on earth. And you might come up with all these plans. But it's silly. You think that you're going to be able to overcome the power of Almighty God? Verse 5 says, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You can chafe all you want. You can resist all you want. It isn't going to change a thing. God the Father has installed God the Son upon His holy mountain to be the ruler of the world. And all men are accountable to Him. The fourth thing I see about these citizens is they were severely judged. Verse 27 says, But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. And this is speaking about eternal judgment that will fall upon those who hated Jesus Christ. Of course, this isn't a pleasant subject to talk about, but it is the Word of God, it is true, and it is going to happen. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 The end of verse 7 says that the Lord Jesus is going to be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. Now what will He do when He shows up in flaming fire with His mighty angels? Verse 8 tells us He's going to deal out retribution. What does that word mean? What's retribution? It's giving back to people what they have deserved. You're giving retribution for crimes committed. It's like a judge finally meeting out a sentence for for those evil crimes that have been committed. So Jesus is going to deal out retribution to those who do not know God, which would include the unfaithful slave. He didn't know his master. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day. So there we have the end of these citizens. Now, let me just wind this message up and ask a few questions. Do we have any enemies of the nobleman here today? Is there anybody here who makes no profession of faith in Jesus Christ? Maybe not. In a church setting, you would, it'd be a little unusual to find folks like that. If that is you, I want to give you the same advice that the psalmist gives in Psalm 2, verse 12. This is, this is his exhortation. Do homage to the Son. That means bow down. Bow down. Bow down to the Son, that He may not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Is it a foreign concept to you to think of the wrath of Jesus Christ? The Bible speaks about that here in Psalm 2. In fact, it speaks about it in Revelation chapter 6. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb! 
Let the mountains fall on us and cover us. We don't want to face the wrath of the Lamb. We think of Jesus Christ, kind, merciful, gracious, and he was all of that in his first coming, but he's coming like a lion to tear, to destroy those who have not surrendered to his kingship. And that's exactly what Psalm 2 is telling us. Bow down, sinner. Bow down while you can. Now, bow before the sovereign rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. Get down on your face while you still have time. Because there's coming a day when you're going to be forced to bow, but it will be too late. You will bow and then be cast into hell. So that's what the, my exhortation for enemies of the gospel is. Do we have any unfaithful slaves here? You profess the name of Christ, you've, you go to church, but you're not real. You're not a true follower of the Lamb. My exhortation for you is, deny yourself. Take up your cross and truly follow Him. Kill your own self-interests and put the interests of your Master before your own. Now gosh, we can, we can apply this in a million ways. I hope that the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes to see ways that you can apply this. I'm just giving you broad, I'm painting with a broad brush today. But may the Spirit of God apply this to your individual experience. If you are a professor of faith in Jesus Christ, be a real follower of Christ. Be a real one. Follow Him. Really follow Him. Take everything that He's given you. He's given you a life. What are you doing with it, my friend? What are you doing with this life? We're going to be called to account one day. And this convicts me probably as much as it convicts you. What am I doing with this life? Am I doing it all that God wants me to do with it? Oh my goodness. We need to live in light of judgment day that's approaching. Every day. Live in light of, of standing before the master. I mean, if, if God would just strip away... <laughs> this worldly haze that we live in and let us see with clear eyes the coming future glory. We'd have a lot easier time knowing how to live right now. But the devil's really good at putting up foggy hazes in front of us. Oh, may the Lord just strip that away and take the blinders off and let us see eternity and live full on for eternity. Oh, to advance the interests of Christ in this world. That, that may mean witnessing to somebody to advance the interests of Christ that may mean serving somebody in the church when they're sick or hurting being there for them that may mean spending time in worship of your Lord daily singing to him and in delighting in his presence opening up his word developing a life of prayer I mean gosh man I, I you can apply it right you know how to apply it it goes on and on and on but seek his interests but thirdly are you a faithful slave work on <laughs> labor on if you're a faithful slave don't give up don't throw in the towel I know some of you may be tired of laboring for your Lord. Don't let the devil persuade you to stop serving Jesus Christ. Serve him with all of your might. Oh, my friends. Serve him so that you're looking for his commendation and his praise. Serve him the, so that you're looking for his reward, not the reward of men, not what men think about you or what they're going to say about you. Forget all of that. I, we are so tied up with that ask God to give you deliverance from the fear of man and the praise of man so you don't care about that anymore what you care about is your master's commendation oh if, if you are a 5 minus slave seek to be a 10 minus slave right if you're a 5 minus slave say from this day forward Lord I endeavor to be a 10 minus slave if you're a 30 fold Christian seek to be a 60 fold Christian and if you're a 60-fold Christian, seek to be a 100-fold Christian. Advance, my friends. Grow in godliness. Grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's worthy. I want to leave you with a poem written by a missionary named C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd was a professional cricketer in, the, in England in the 1800s. He was famous. He was one of the best cricketers. Now, we don't even know what cricket is, but that, that's big 
big uh, athletics over in England. And so he was known on the lips of everyone over in England. He was wealthy because his wealthy father had died and given him this great inheritance. And he took all of that money and gave it away. And he went to China to serve as a missionary. And later he went to Africa to serve as a missionary. And this is a poem that he wrote. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling a life along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet, and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave, and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. He did that. He burned out his life for Jesus Christ. And you know what kind of reward C.T. Studd received when he stood before his master. He was a 10 minor servant. I want to just close with 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Oh God, I pray you'd seal the precious truths of your word to hearts today. And Lord, may your Holy Spirit move upon hearts and apply the scripture. Lord, help us not to be, go away unchanged. We pray that a great work of your spirit would take place in our lives. Show us, Lord, how we are wasting time and wasting money and wasting our gifts and how we can be a ten minus servant and a hundredfold Christian. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.